0: Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Bible and Life podcast. I am so glad once again that you are with me on this episode, and I am absolutely amazed that it's only a week till Christmas. Can you believe that? A week till Christmas. I don't know what happened in November, and now here we're halfway through December. Incredible. So wherever you are at, I pray that you are having a wonderful Christmas season, and may you have a grace-filled Christmas this year. We're actually in the middle of a series here on the podcast where we're looking at Luke chapter 2, the most well-known version of the Christmas story in the Bible, and we've been walking through the historical details of that. And we're going to jump into part two of that here in just a bit, but before we do, I wanted to invite you to... to prayerfully consider giving an end-of-the-year gift to the Bible in Life ministry. These online Bible teaching resources are made possible by the generous support of people like you. And I have people on my Patreon page who give every month to support this ministry. And I have people who give every month through World Family Mission. And so I would invite you to just consider... If you want to be a patron and going into 2020, man, sign up on Patreon. If you want to give an end-of-the-year special gift, feel free to do that through World Family Mission. All donations given there are tax-deductible and uh, are under the oversight of that ministry. And I will put the links down to those below. But prayerfully consider supporting this ministry because I couldn't do it without the generous support of people like you. So thanks to all of you who already support that way. I appreciate you more than you... Uh, could possibly know. Thanks a ton for your generous support. All right, we are in Luke chapter 2 and we're walking through this uh, well-known Christmas story and we're looking at the historical details because sometimes we're so maybe familiar with our picture of what happened, our traditional understanding of what happened, that we love those details and we actually don't pay attention to the details of the biblical text And thus, maybe we miss some things in the text or we misunderstand some things in the text. And so today, the question I really want us to wrestle with from the section of Luke 2 we're going to look at is, was Jesus really born in a barn? Was Jesus really born in a barn? Most of our nativity sets have like a barn-type scene where there's a barn, there is a little feeding trough, manger, there's Mary and Joseph. We usually throw in all the extras of the cast as well, the shepherds. We even throw in some sheep and some maybe some cows because, of course, the cattle are lowing. We'll even throw in the wise men, and there's three of them, and they're little gifts. We'll throw in an angel and a star. We've got all of that in our nativity set, but it's all set within the context of a barn. So, was Jesus really born in a barn. That is the question of the day. In our first episode on this Christmas series, we looked at just the first couple verses and really the historical background, the historical story that this is set against. Who's Caesar Augustus? What is this census? Who's Quirinius? What's going on? We did that Um, One of the reasons we did that is because, not just because the history is so important and matters, but because it helps us understand that this story is set in the context of Jewish hopes and longings, hopes and longings that have been really, in some ways, like, seemingly ignored for centuries, not just decades, centuries, like, the whole backstory... And it's really a dark backdrop against which this story is set, and and it's not uh, all cheery and rosy and bright, but it's, it's uh, foreign occupation, foreign oppression. Here is a tax census by a powerful Roman emperor who lives 1,400 miles away, but he controls the whole empire, and he's got his local client kings, and they're in charge of this whole area. And... Jews who believe they're God's people and are longing for God's promises, and they haven't come. So it's that backdrop that really is is at the heart of verses 1 and 2. And We looked at that last time and how significant that is. It's in that context that we read these words now in, in verse um, 3 and 4, where it says that everyone went to his own city, city to register for the census, and Joseph... Also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. Just a few details in verse 4 there that are so important. He goes up from Galilee, if you're not familiar with the general geography of first century Israel. Galilee is a region up to the north, right around the Sea of Galilee. So kind of a northern political region um, north of Jerusalem, all right? And so Galilee in the north from the city of Nazareth, a small little town, uh, very insignificant little town actually in in Galilee. uh, He goes from there to Judea. Judea is the Roman uh, provincial region Uh, in and around Jerusalem, Jerusalem and the surrounding environs. That's Judea. Judea means the people of the Jews. And so that's that region down south around Jerusalem. From from Galilee to Jerusalem is roughly 90 miles or so. So it's about a 90-mile trip that they're going to take. And so they travel from Galilee to Judea, specifically to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So Bethlehem is the actual name of the town. City of David is a nickname for the town because it's where David is from. David, if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, David is the really the most significant king in the Old Testament story, the Old Testament history of the Jews. And it is from David's line that the Messiah was promised to come. And so David is very significant. David's from the town of Bethlehem, and hence Bethlehem is nicknamed the town of David. All right? So Joseph travels to the town of David, the city of Bethlehem. Notice at the end of verse 4, because he's of the house and family of David. Very important that we notice that Joseph is part of the royal line of David. That's what it's saying. He's part of the lineage of David. He's part of the house of David, the family of David, the royal line of King David. That's significant. That's who Joseph is. By itself, that fact gives him audience and welcome in town. If, if you're part of David's line and you're coming to David's town, y- you've got connections. You're welcomed in town. And in fact, as Kenneth Bailey says, all he has to do is show up in town and mention a family line, I am Joseph, the son of so-and-so, and the, the grandson of so-and-so, and all of that, right? And immediately he would be welcomed into the town with open arms, with great excitement. And so by itself, that fact gives him welcome in town. Not only that, plus he's going there for to register for a tax census which means it's where his family of origin is from his family of origin is from Bethlehem he, it's possible he still has family there in fact it's, it's actually somewhat likely that he he at least has some extended family there in in Bethlehem again that gives him audience and welcome in town he's going there because his family is connected there because he's from there all right that's really important to notice uh, so we understand what happens when he gets there. So he's going to Bethlehem. He's going there to register, verse 5 says, which means to register uh, as part of the empire so that he can pay taxes to the empire. So he's going to register along with Mary, who's engaged to him and who was with child. So Mary goes along. She's pregnant. As I said, it's about a 90-mile trip. And Mary had taken this trip, just a couple months ago to go visit her relative who's pregnant with John the Baptist, and she had visited her for a while, and she, she has family also in the area. Again, that's really important. Now, a couple things that aren't explicitly in the text, but, but are filled in by the assumptions of the culture, all right? So the Western cultural assumption, in other words, my cultural assumption as a Western American, right, like someone in the cultural West, you know, our, the Western assumption is Mary and Joseph take this trip by themselves. That's how we would do it. If we're having to make a trip, we would hop in the car, you know, us, and we would just drive to where we're going. And so our assumption is they take this trip by themselves. The Middle Eastern cultural assumption is that they were with a group of people heading this way. They didn't take this trip by themselves, that's just not the way you would do it. Uh, You would go with a group who was going down to Jerusalem or going this direction, either to register for the census or for some other reason to take this trip, and so they're part of a whole group. And more than likely, that's the way it worked. You actually see this playing out at the end of chapter 2, when Jesus, 12 years old, and Mary and Joseph go to Jerusalem uh, for the Passover. The trip there, it's never said they're with a group. The trip home, when Jesus stays behind... It's stated that they're with family and friends. There's a whole entourage making the trip. They assume Jesus is with somewhere in the group. And when he doesn't show up uh, at nighttime after the first day of the trip, they're like, well, where in the world did he go? So they get up the next morning and they go find him in Jerusalem. That's the assumption, that there's a whole group of people making this trip. And so Mary and Joseph make this trip to Bethlehem, probably part of a fairly large group of people that is traveling this direction, all right? So, summary so far of what we've got. Uh, They are making a trip to the area that their family is from, and that's important for what happens when they get there. In our our traditional understanding, they arrive in Bethlehem at night, right? Like, that's the way we picture it. That's the way it is in every little kid's Christmas play ever told in American churches, right? They, They arrive at night, and when they arrive, they, they, Mary goes into labor. As soon as they arrive, they're banging on, you know, the inn door. There's a grumpy, grouchy old innkeeper who slams the door in their face. They're kicked to the curb and they have to give birth to Jesus all alone, just the two of them in a barn. Just notice, none of that is in the text. None of that is in the text. All right. Um, they travel this direction in a group And there's nothing about night. I'm guessing we get night because of the wise men and the star, but that happens later. That's not even mentioned in Luke's version. That's only in Matthew's version. And that actually happens months, probably months later, not right away. And so there's nothing about night. Notice verse 6. They make this trip. They arrive in Bethlehem. They get settled in. They get settled in to Bethlehem. Verse 6 says, while they were there. The days were completed for her to give birth. Not the moment they arrived while they were there. In other words, they were settled into Bethlehem. They had been staying there for a period of time. We don't know how long. And the days were completed for her to give birth. Her water breaks and she goes into labor at some point point after having been in Bethlehem for a while. And that means that they're there, they're settled in, she goes into labor, the town midwife is, is likely called, the women who had experience with these sorts of things, they come to where they're staying, and they gather around them, and the days are completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. Firstborn is important because by Old Testament law, the firstborn belongs to the Lord. So she gives birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths, traditionally swaddling cloths. It's just the way every ordinary Jew of the day, just the ordinary people, that's just what they did with their babies. They wrapped them in cloths. So she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger let's keep reading, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Alright, we got to think this through a little bit and just clarify exactly what's going on. This is where we get the barn imagery, right? Was Jesus really born in a barn? Well, this is where we get the barn imagery. Manger, no room for an inn. Again, our Western cultural assumption, a manger, that is a feeding trough for animals. Where do you put a feeding trough? You put it in the barn. Hence, Our assumption is they had to be in a barn. The problem is is that's just not the way it worked in Palestine for most of history. Like even up until modern times, that's just not the way it worked in um, the Middle East for most of history. So we've got to think this through and understand some cultural background to know what's really going on here. So let's work backwards, all right? laid them in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's start there with the inn, all right? I I have no um, idea why we traditionally translated this word in. The word in Greek is kataluma. It means just a place to stay. Very broad, very generic word for a place to stay. Um. The word for a commercial inn is a totally different word. In fact, Luke uses the word for a commercial inn in Luke chapter 10 in the story of the Good Samaritan. That's not the word we have here. We just have a broad general word for a place to stay. Luke uses this word um, here in Chapter two, verse eleven, or verse seven, and then he uses it one other time. And that is in Luke twenty one, verse or Luke twenty two. Sorry, Luke twenty two, verse eleven, when they're preparing for the last supper, and uh, Jesus tells him to go make preparations at the house, and the guy makes preparations in his. It's translated guest room. That's the same word that's translated in here. It's a general word that means guest room or place to stay. The only other time Luke uses it is the word that's translated guest room because it's attached to a person's house. And more often than not, that's probably what we have here. Could be a general word that could include maybe just some other place to stay, but it's it's a place to stay. And one of the ways it was used for the guest room attached to a home. So now we need to understand some things about uh, Middle Eastern homes, particularly first century homes. Typically, The first-century home was like a a kind of like split-level home. So it had a door you would walk into on the ground floor. You would walk into just sort of a small little area. Um, that small little area would be where the the family goat and sheep and maybe a cow was kept at night, all right? So right there in the first room of the house, the lower level, small area, you would have room for the family animals. They would be brought in there at night. Then, then it would be an elevated um, room, basically, like kind of a platform. It was like the living room. It was the one room flat for the whole family. It was where cooking was done, where sleeping was done, where f- the family lived. It would be basically the one room of the house that was somewhat elevated above the ground floor where the animals were kept, and that was the family area. Then you might have, if, if you were lucky enough, you might have a guest room attached to the back of the house somehow. That's probably what we're describing here. We're probably describing a guest room, and someone was already staying in there. The mangers, just by Middle Eastern culture, cultural practice and assumption, the manger's in that lower room of the house, that first room that you would walk in through the door. That's the way it was. And so um, that's just the way their houses were. The animals were brought in at night, let out in the morning. You see this everywhere assumed in the biblical text. You see it in the New Testament all over the place. Again, if you want more details on this, check out this book by Kenneth Bailey, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Kenneth Bailey lived in the Middle East from 1935 to 1995, so he knows the Middle Eastern culture. He reads um, commentaries on the biblical text from right after the time period written by Middle Easterners, so he knows this stuff, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. I'll put a link to it down in the notes below, but if you want more details, this is just the way their houses are made. Their houses are made this way. The mangers inside the house. Um, in other words, what's being said in this verse is: Well, there was no there. Somebody was already staying in the guest room, wherever Joseph and Mary landed in Bethlehem, and because of that, they were welcomed into the the living quarters of the family. They're welcomed into. Um, the family room, the living quarters of the family. Maybe they stayed on the ground floor and they kicked the animals out. Maybe they stayed on the upper floor with the family. We don't know. But the manger, more often than not, is sometimes down in that lower room. Oftentimes, it's actually kind of dug out or set into, carved into the ground um, of the the family room, the family living quarters, so that the animals sit down in that lower room could just at head level, right? They could just eat right out of the manger right there um, because it would be right at head level, not at the floor level. That's oftentimes the way it was done. And so, Mary and Joseph are in a house, not a barn. They're possibly in the living quarters of the house, the upper level. Or they're in the lower level where the animals often stayed at, in the house at night. And maybe those animals have been kicked out because it's crowded now. We've got people in the guest room. we got the family in the house. So it's crowded in there. Maybe we've kicked the animals out. All right. That's what we're picturing is a home. Um, and that's incredibly significant for our understanding of what's going on. Um, don't picture a cave. Don't picture a barn. Picture a home. Picture Mary going into labor and the town midwife being called and the women of the town who have uh, experience with these sorts of things coming to help. All the men being, um, you know, leaving the home and being out in the the courtyard of the, the family home, out there waiting through the whole experience. Joseph out there waiting with the other men while they're waiting for Jesus to give birth. And Little baby Jesus is born in the context of family and friends in the the confines, the warmth of a, a, a Jewish first century home being laid in some hay in a manger in that home with Mary and Joseph because the guest room is full. In other words, Jesus was born the ordinary way. This is the way virtually every ordinary child was born in the first century Um, among family and friends with the town midwife there helping out. This was an ordinary birth. What the point is, or at least one of the points is, is that the Messiah coming into the world came into the world the ordinary way. God is on the move God is at work. God is uh, bringing his king, his Messiah, into the world. But it's happening the ordinary way. This, this Messiah is a commoner as well as a king. He is a peasant king, if you will. In fact, the author of Hebrews says this to, to describe Jesus. Uh, the author of Hebrews says he became like us, catch this, in every way. In fact, the author of Hebrews says in another place that he can sympathize with us. God didn't bypass the ordinary when he sent his son into the world. He entered the ordinary. It's not as if Jesus was kicked to the curb and they're all alone in a barn or in a cave. They're, They're in a Jewish home, welcomed in a Jewish town because they're of the line and the family and the house of David, they are. This is a king. This is a king, uh, part of the royal line, and he's a commoner at the same time. And so, as you, uh, as you go about your Christmas reflections and meditations this year, may you recognize that um, God sent His Son into the world the ordinary way, and He didn't bypass the ordinary. He didn't, didn't you know, bypass even just normal growing up years, that that Jesus, the king, comes into the world as a commoner and a king. And that, my friends, is good news because that means he enters into our ordinary world just as well. And he knows what it's like to be part of the ordinary world. He was born into the ordinary world. He grew up in an ordinary world. He understands the ordinary world. He gets it. He gets it. All right, there you go. That's uh, some important details for actually understanding what's going on in the traditional Christmas story. Next week, we will pick up with the, the culmination of the story about shepherds and sheep and what is that all about. And we'll bring this story full circle as we hear what God has to say about this one who was born in a very average, ordinary sort of way. Hey, I hope you have a wonderful day christmas week leading up to christmas day next week and may you revel in the glory and the wonder of the best news of all that the infinite almighty god became one of us and lived among us to bring us back to himself god bless you guys i hope you have a wonderful week we'll talk again soon